We're going to be back in Mark 13. We'll begin reading in verse 14. It says, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, Matthew tells us, in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in that in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter. For in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. So we began talking last week about this abomination of desolation. And we see the the Jewish language here. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. This is Jesus' message concerning the abomination. It's going to take place in Jerusalem, in the temple. And so he's speaking to those in Israel, in Judea in particular, and saying it's time to flee. Verse 15, he talks about if you're on the housetop, don't go back to get anything out of your house. Well, the housetop was a place of rest and recreation in the time of Jesus. The housetops were flat normally, and a parapet surrounded the roof edge. They were commanded this in Deuteronomy 22 and verse 8. Where he says, when you build a new house, then you shall make a parapet for your roof. And that's just a railing or wall. That you may not bring guilt of bloodshed on your household if anyone falls from it. So you don't want people falling off your roof when you're up there, you know, recreating. And it was often cooler in the evenings than it was in the house itself. And so they would have these places, you know, they'd gather on the housetops and... There was a, normally a staircase on the outside of the house that would go up to the roof. So you had to go down the outside to get back into the house. And so, you know, Jesus is saying, don't even take time to do that. This is how critical the situation is that you need to flee. We see this in various places in Scripture. You remember in Acts chapter 10, uh, when Peter uh, was beginning to pray, he went up on the housetop to pray. Right? And this is when he saw the vision with the sheet coming down, all the unclean animals in the sheet and all but but he went up there to pray about this sixth hour and he became hungry so this is where god gave him the vision but he's up there he's he's spending time alone in prayer on the rooftop in mark chapter 2 and the other gospels we read about the man whose friends uh the paraplegic whose whose uh, his friends wanted him to be healed by jesus and they couldn't get in the house so they went up on the roof and they dug through the roof. You know, a lot of us, it wouldn't really work for us to have fellowship on our roof because they're slanted. You know, like Paul's house, you'd probably just slide off, right? Unless you were holding on to solar panels or something. And I remember some places where I've been before, you know, they've had porches with flat roofs attached to the house and, and a bedroom with a window that opened and you could go out on the roof from there. And so we had at the old farmhouse that a group of people used to gather at. Yeah. Um, we'd be out on the rooftop sometimes, you know, just having fun. First Samuel 9, uh, when Samuel is, is speaking to Saul about being king, it says, when they come down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the top of the house. So once again, we see this in Second Samuel um, with the uh, rebellion of Absalom. They actually pitched a tent on the rooftop and Absalom defiled his father's concubines. You know, he went into the tent. It wasn't out in the open, but everybody knew this is what's happening. It was a, a shame on the, the women and a shame for David for that to happen. Um, Joshua. With Rahab, when the spies came in and she hid them, she hid them on a rooftop under the flax. So it was very common for this, this situation. Uh, in Nehemiah 8.16, after the people come back from captivity and they're back in the land, in verse 16 it says, The people went out and brought them 
and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of its house or in their courtyards or the courts of the house of God and in the open square of the water gate and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So they were celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles and they set up the, the booths and some of those were set up on people set up on their housetops. And in uh, Jeremiah, he speaks in verse, chapter 19, verse 13. He says, The houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah shall be defiled like the place of Tophet because of all the houses on whose roofs they have burned incense to all the hosts of heaven and poured out drink offerings to other gods. So it could be used for good purposes. It could also be used for evil purposes. And the people of Israel began to do that. And then in Matthew 10:27, Jesus speaking says, Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and whatever you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. Mm. So, you know, if you want to be obedient today, you'll get up on Paul's roof. <laughs> <laughs> but in that day, it was a great place to make announcements, you know. Mm. So-and-so has a new son, you know, or, or whatever. So you could preach things, proclaim things from the housetops. And Jesus says, proclaim the good news. Uh, from the housetops, speak it in the light. So this is an appropriate warning for the Jews of the first century as the Romans laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. The warning is to escape without trying to salvage any belongings. The time is too short and fleeing must take place immediately if wants to be delivered from likely death. So don't go back for extra clothes. Don't try to save your favorite blanket, cup, or pillow. Get out while you can. This warning applies to our times, the time of the coming tribulation period, when the Antichrist will seek to destroy all the Jews once again. Now, this is definitely speaking of the end times with this abomination of desolation. I don't know that there are that many flat rooftops in Israel anymore, but this is the the uh, immediacy of the warning and the steps that they must take. Get away, don't go back for your cell phone or your iPad. Flee like Lot and his wife and daughters, and don't look back. Luke chapter 17, Jesus speaks of uh, this time as well. He says, in that day, uh, 1731, in that day he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. A lot of times you'd be out in the field, you'd be leaving your cloak and stuff over on the outside the field somewhere and and so don't even go back to get you know warm stuff or whatever you you might need and then verse 32 he says remember Lot's wife so looking back with longing for those things not good we know what happened to Lot's wife as we remember her So coming down to verse 19, all those intervening verses are about fleeing and getting out. And when we come to verse 19, he talks about this tribulation period that will be worse than any other time in history. Um, We looked at this abomination of desolation last week, and we know it refers to the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, going into the Jewish temple and standing where he ought not in the holy place, and he declares himself... To be God, he he wants to be worshipped as God. Uh, we saw that in Second Thessalonians two four and five. Speaking of him, it says, "Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God." Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? This is the midway point through the seven year tribulation period. Three and a half years before the second coming of Jesus to judge the world and set up his earthly kingdom for 1,000 years. We've got a millennium coming. Uh, you might recall, well, who, who, who would you say was the last one that talked about a thousand year kingdom in history? Can you, can you think of anyone? Hitler did. Hitler did, yeah. I'm sure for him it was an allegory for forever, you know. But he was going to set up this thousand-year Reich. Once he said, "He said what I do is going to last a thousand years." Well, he made it about nine or so, maybe not that much. 
So, but Jesus is going to come and set up his king, earthly kingdom for this thousand years, and then it will be followed by the kingdom over which he will rule forever, which will never uh, end. But there's this terrifying description of this time, such as has not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. That's, that's hard to picture. It's hard to even imagine. Well, you know, just the things we know of that have happened, you know, and um, through our history of, of what we've gathered. When we look at history and the many horrible experiences of men and women, we, we must surely tremble at this description. And this is not an isolated reference. We read as well Daniel 12.1, where uh, Daniel is told, At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who's found written in the book. Uh, deliverance hasn't come yet. And so it's yet future. In Jeremiah 37, which we've read several times, he says, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Once again, um, Israel, Jacob has not yet been saved out of that time. And so we see these descriptions in the book of Revelation of the plagues that are going to be taking place during that seven-year period, especially the last three and a half years. Uh, surely there has been no other time like it in history. We see in these passages still the centrality of Israel in this tribulation period. The time is set. It's determined upon them in Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. The last seven years of the current age. And then we move into the the real new age, not the new age that people talk about now. <laughs> he says in verse 20 then, unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake whom he chose, he shortened the days. So um, Jesus makes this Amazing statement, another amazing statement. Uh, the word shortened can mean mutilated or amputated. So he's going to shorten the days. The purpose is uh, so that there is not a total elimination of life on the earth. He says, if I don't shorten the days, no flesh will survive. Only in our times has mankind been capable of such destruction. Or God could do it any time he wants. Only recently do we have mutually assured destruction many times over. Israel as a nation has to happen in the last days. The stage is increasingly being set for the events prophesied in the scriptures. But the Lord will stop the destruction before it's completely terminal for life. He's going to shorten the days. It will be like from 24 hours to 12 hours I think it's more the period of time that he's talking about is going to be shorter. So how how much shorter will it be? Will it be shorter than the three and a half years specified? Mm. I think the seven years may be a shortened time to preserve mankind. That may be built into that time period already. Uh, the preservation of life may already be built into these seven years, but the only way we'll know is to stay tuned. And uh, we'll find out. Hopefully we won't find out here because we'll be aware of in another place with the Lord. But we're told that this shortening is for the elect's sake, that the days are shortened. But who are the elect in this passage? We have seen that the language is focused upon Israel and the Jews, and that's who I believe are being referred to as the elect here. But before we look at who the elect is in this passage, I want to consider some issues of Bible interpretation. This is where the different understanding understandings of terms diverge in different directions. I apologize to those of you who are not doctrine geeks or is it doctrine wonks? I'm not sure how, you know. If you hang in there with me, I think you'll benefit from this digression or it's a, it's a sidebar, as Andy would say. We're, we're uh, digressing from the text here in order to come back to seeing what this understanding should be. When it comes to election, as with some other doctrines, you can pretty much go as deep as you want to. You can put on the hip waders, or you can get out the scuba deer gear, or you can just skim across the top. 
Now you can get out the jet ski or ski behind a boat. There's certainly an element of mystery involved. And I think this is due to our finite minds. There's only so much that we can can comprehend. But I think the Lord has given us plenty of information to give us a basic understanding of these things. It's not necessary to understand some issues in order to be saved. Faith in Christ, Jesus, is what accomplishes that. He doesn't command that we understand, although we pray for understanding. What he requires is that we believe him, whether we feel we understand or not. We take his statements at face value. Uh, We believe them. And so, you know, we might say, well, I don't understand that. Well, just um, seek the Lord, ask him for understanding, and trust the Lord. And and be at peace because your salvation doesn't depend upon your comprehension of some things. And something you know, there are some things that are complex within the scriptures. Paul uh, Peter spoke of Paul's writings and said, "That guy's got some things that are hard to understand." You know, but he knew that they were scripture. He confirmed that. And so, you know, as we grow in the Lord, we we tend to understand more and more as we grow in Him. So although salvation does not depend on our understanding election, we just have to be among the elect, some passages can be confusing and unsettling if we don't understand. And a basic understanding can help, particularly concerning prophecy. In the resurrection, all things will be crystal clear. It'll be like, oh, yeah, So the meaning of the terms elect, election, chosen, etc. are dependent upon the context in which they occur and how they're understood is often dependent upon one's method of interpreting the Bible or what is known as hermeneutics. That's the academic term, hermeneutics. You might think, Herman who? (laughs) Charles Ryrie wrote, Hermeneutics is the study of the principles of interpretation. Exegesis consists of the actual interpretation of the Bible, the bringing out of its meaning, while hermeneutics establishes the principles by which exegesis is practiced. And so you got exegesis, which is the bringing out of the meaning. It's a drawing out of the meaning of the scriptures versus eisegesis, which is coming to the Bible with a preconceived idea and then reading into those passages what you desire for them to say. Ryrie goes on to say, in actuality, every interpreter of the Bible has a system of hermeneutics, whether consciously so or not. As one practices his exegesis, he reveals his hermeneutics, though probably most interpreters do not ever systematize their hermeneutics. Few, if any, interpreters begin by working out their hermeneutics before proceeding to exegesis. Most seem to think about hermeneutics after they've been interpreting for years. But thinking about the subject of hermeneutics serves an important purpose, for it does force one to examine the basis of exegesis and the consistency of his interpretive practices. And we want to be consistent in understanding scripture. Much accurate biblical interpretation comes from just having good reading skills that a person applies to any other materials. Rules of grammar and context are important when you come to reading the Bible. And I started reading at a fairly young age. I don't remember. I mean, I knew how to read by the time I got to kindergarten. But I remember it was kindergarten or first grade. One day they took us to the school library and they let us check out a couple of books to take home with us, you know. And this was my first experience with that. And so mm-hmm. it led to many Saturdays riding my bike down to the West Side Branch Library and loading up with some books and going home and so I just I began to read and as you you read you begin to understand you know allegories and poetry and different things so just basic reading skills first thing if a person interprets the scriptures in a literal way they will come to different conclusions than someone who understands scripture in an allegorical way I think one problem with an allegorical approach is that there are usually several possible interpretations of a passage and no way to definitively identify which is the correct one. A literal approach is much more straightforward 
and results in a relatively objective interpretation of the passage. The literal approach recognizes symbolism and poetry in interpreting a passage. For example, when Jesus says, I'm the door, it's understood that he's speaking of a way through or to somewhere and not a wood or metal object with a knob. Uh, The most recent issue of Israel, My Glory magazine, it's January, February issue, was published by the Friends, it's published by the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry, and it was focused on how to read your Bible, and these differing approaches were compared, and they have some helpful examples, so I'm going to share with you some from a couple of their articles. Some of you may have read this already, if you subscribe to that, that magazine, but I benefit from it for more than once, so I'm sure that others will as well. For example, they say, literal means we employ the plain, normal, common, everyday usage of the words in the text. We interpret each word using its primary, usual, literal, original, ordinary meaning, unless the context indicates otherwise. Certainly, the literal method also takes into consideration the use of types, symbols, figures of speech, parables, and allegories as stated in the context of the verses being interpreted. End quote. So a scripture, you've heard a scripture without a context is a pretext. If you just pull out a scripture and and apply it to what you want it to apply to you, and the Lord may be gracious and, and, you know, fulfill that for you, uh, but it becomes just a reason for something else that's not really supported by the context itself. It may be used to support an idea that's not in its context, thus its use may be inappropriate or even illegitimate. In comparing literal and allegorical interpretation, Israel Mike Glory writes this, As traditional dispensationalists, we read the Bible in a manner similar to the way we read the newspaper. Traditional dispensationalists, Calvary Chapel is in fact dispensational if you're not aware of that that fact in fact in fact if you're not dispensational you'll probably have to abandon the literal interpretive method and 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 adopt the allegorical because so many things just won't fit literally into the allegorical or into the the time periods and so you have to go to an allegorical interpretation so, Calvary Chapel, we believe in different dis- dispensations. We're in a church age or a dispensation of grace, it's sometimes called. And God had different periods of time where he dealt with mankind in different ways. In every way or every time period, there's one way of salvation that does not change, and that's by faith in the Lord. He, he bestows salvation upon those who believe him and believe what he has said. So we read the Bible, it says, in a manner similar to the way we read the newspaper. That is, we read the text before us with a plain, normal, matter-of-fact understanding of language. The meanings of individual words are determined by their context. We all know this intuitively, but let's consider an example just for the sake of clarity. Let's consider the following headlines from a local newspaper. So we read it in the same way we read the newspaper Then, about these headlines. The first one is from the front page. Truck hits roadside bomb. The second is similar, but it's found on the sports page. Hometown slugger hits bomb to left field. (laughs) The third is like the first two, but it's found in the entertainment section. Big budget movie, a bomb. (laughs) A plain, literal, matter-of-fact understanding of these three headlines would define bomb three different ways. In the first instance, the bomb is an explosive. In the second, it's a home run in baseball. And in the third, the bomb is a bad movie. That intuitive understanding of the meaning of the word bomb demonstrates what we mean by a plain, literal, ordinary, matter-of-fact reading of the text. We all know how to read this way. We do it all the time. Traditional dispensationalists maintain that this is exactly the way we should read the Bible. We accept figures of speech when appropriate, like Jesus saying, I'm the light of the world. Well, that is literal, but not in the sense of him being the sun or, you know, a light, light bulb in the room. I'm the bread of life. Well, he is the bread or nourishment for our spirits that gives us life. But he's not a literal piece of bread. And as we took communion, I didn't perform any transubstantiation, you know. 
and doesn't work. <laughs> or when he says, I'm the good shepherd. He is a good shepherd, literally, but he's not out on the hillside with uh, physical sheep. We are his sheep. Right? So uh, we accept these figures of speech when appropriate, but we let the context define the meanings of the words. We stick with the ordinary, obvious meanings unless there's something in the context to suggest otherwise. Okay, then. Election is a doctrine in which all Christians believe. It's not the exclusive domain of the Calvinist or the Reformed theologian. Sometimes people think you must be either a Calvinist or an Arminian, but that is not so. I don't consider myself either one, nor do I think of myself as a Protestant. I have come along well after the Protestant Reformation, and I'm not protesting anything in my doctrinal positions. I'm simply coming to the scriptures and seeking to understand them biblically as much as is possible for me. Of course, I may be incorrect regarding some things, and I don't come to my conclusions in isolation from other believers. I consider what others have to say and evaluate what they say in light of the scriptures. Many Calvary Chapel pastors find that there are truths in both God's election and man's freedom to choose to serve the Lord, and they don't feel compelled to try and reconcile the two. Certainly, God can choose to do what he wants to do, and no one can say to him that he can't. In Daniel 4.35, Nebuchadnezzar speaking, he says, All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? This is God's sovereignty expounded for us. He is the Almighty God. He is Lord. He does all things according to the counsel of his own will, as we read in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. The question is, what has God told us that he has done or is doing? He hasn't told us everything, but he's told us what we need to know. Of course, within each camp, Calvinists and Arminians, there are variances in some doctrinal positions. Some people are five-point Calvinists, as indicated by the TULIP acronym, a Total Depravity, Unconditional Election, Limited Atonement, Irresistible Grace, and Perseverance of the Saints. But there are also four-point Calvinists. They're usually ones who don't accept limited atonement because it's really hard to accept that if you read the scriptures straightforwardly. You know, he died for the sins of the world. And he's a propitiation not only for our sins, but for the propitiation for the sins of the world also, etc. So that's usually the one that the four-pointers will leave out. And there are some three-point Calvinists. I'm not sure which ones they leave out. And then there was one fellow I read who was something like a 17-point Calvinist. I may not have the number right. It's been a long time since I read it, but he had a bunch more. <laughs> of course, we must know how these points are defined before we can decide if we agree with them. Uh, sometimes, you know, we might think it means one thing, but they mean by it something different because of the usage of the words. But that's not our topic this morning, the five points of Calvinism. If you're interested in more information concerning Calvinism itself, then Tim did a series. I don't know, was it at this It was at this facility, so within the last couple of years. Uh, and they're out on the website, Calvinism Part 1, 2, and 3. And so I recommend those to you. And sometime we may go into it again. But what we want to look at is just the idea of election, how sovereignty and free will work together. This argument is usually framed in its simplest form as the sovereignty of God versus the free will of man. Again, I don't know of any Christians who deny the sovereignty of God, but some certainly understand it differently than others. Some believe it means that God meticulously controls all things that ever happen, including the fall of man and all sinful acts that men or women commit. I've got a problem with that. God is holy, righteous, and good and does not ordain anything that is evil. First uh, John 1.5 tells us, he says, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. 
In James 1.13, he says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. And many other passages speak to us of God's character and his moral purity. If we begin compromising in this, even by implication, then we are headed for trouble. Now, I'm not saying that any who hold to this concept of meticulous control are impugning the character of God. They certainly say that they are not. Uh, God is the one who must judge. But I do have a problem with that viewpoint because I think it implies that God's character is different than what he declares it to be to us in the scriptures. Now, to others, God's sovereignty, this would be my position, simply means that God is Lord over all. All answer to him will be judged according to his righteousness, and he does whatever he chooses to do. He answers to no one. All others will give an account for things that they choose that are in opposition to his holy standard. Uh, my understanding is well represented in these statements by A.W. Tozer from the pursuit of God. God sovereignly decreed that man should be free to exercise moral choice. And man from the beginning has fulfilled that decree by making his choice between good and evil. When he chooses to do evil, he does not thereby countervail the sovereign will of God, but fulfills it. Inasmuch as the eternal decree decided not what choice the man should make, but that he should be free to make it. If in his absolute freedom... God has willed to give man limited freedom. Who is there to stay his hand or say, what doest thou? As Job 9.12. If he takes away, who can hinder him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? And Tozer goes on to say, man's will is free because God is sovereign. He's decided that it would be that way. And he says a God less than sovereign could not bestow moral freedom upon his creatures. He would be afraid to do so. And so the, the point in God's sovereignty of doing all things according to the counsel of his own will is that he does not have to fear freedom of creatures because he will work everything to bring about his end no matter what decisions uh, men and women make. It's not a problem for him. And usually people come to this idea of the sovereignty of God being meticulous control of all things because they don't believe that God can um, know what truly free men or women might do until they do it. So if they're really free, God can't know what they're going to do. God knows. He knows everything. He knows he knows what I'm going to do, you know, this afternoon or tonight. This is God's knowledge. He's omniscient. He knows all those things because he knows everything about us and he knows everything inside us and what's going on with us. And so he does. He, he knows which one's going to win now. And not only does he know the things that we're going to decide and what we're going to do with, without making us decide those things. We've got the freedom of choice. Not only does he know those things, he knows hypothetical situations, and he tells us that in, in the Bible. I think we saw one a while back. Oh, if, if uh, the works that had been done in you, Capernaum, uh, done, the works that were done in you, Capernaum, had been done in you know, Tyre, Sidon. I don't remember where the specific place was. It could have been anywhere. You know, but he knew that those people would have repented, even though it never happened. And so God's knowledge goes beyond uh, anything else. And so he doesn't have to wait to see what we're going to decide. He doesn't have to control what we do so that he's in control. He's in control <laughs> with us being completely free. Okay. Another quote from Tozer from Knowledge of the Holy. He says, Where there is no freedom of choice, there can be neither sin nor righteousness, because it is of the nature of both that they be voluntary. However good an act may be, it is not good if it is imposed from without. The act of imposition destroys the moral content of the act and renders it null and void. No one can really be held to an account if they don't have the ability to choose one way or the other. 
Well, one objection to this is that man's will is free to make choices, but because he's a sinner, dead in trespasses and sins, his choices are always evil in his sinfulness. But death in the Bible, like dead in trespasses and sins, that does not mean cease to exist, nor does it mean total disability or inability. Fallen man makes moral choices, and some of those choices are good in a human sense. But his moral choices are not perfect, and this makes him unable to be saved by his own works, behavior, character, or life. Those good things that he does that truly are good in in society or community do not earn him salvation with God because he's doing other things that aren't good because he is dead in trespasses and sins. Death in the Bible has the meaning of separation. In physical death, the soul and spirit are separated from the body. Sinful men sometimes do good things. This does not make them good or holy or righteous in God's sight. They remain sinners in need of a Savior. In spiritual death, the spirit and soul are separated from God. They don't cease to exist. Isaiah 59, verses 1 through 3 He says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. There's that spiritual death. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. And, you know, he goes on continuing to castigate them. But man is not rendered incapable of hearing or responding to God by spiritual death. There is not a perfect correlation between physical death of the body and spiritual death. When God speaks, fallen man is capable of hearing the voice of God and either accepting what God has said or rejecting what God has said. It begins with the witness of creation. We're told in Psalm 19, Verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom running out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end and there is nothing hidden from its its heat. So this witness of creation, we might call it, he says in verse 3, there's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Men are accountable because God speaks to them through creation. The fact that there is a God and that his power and uh, to some degree his Righteousness and his holiness. We see fallen creation uh, within that. And so men make the mistake. They'll see creation not being perfect and they'll say, well, uh, must not have been created by a good God or it must have evolved or it must have been an accident. But they don't take into account the fall of man and that put a curse upon all creation, right? But, but the creation still speaks to the power creative ability of God and men can hear that fallen men know that and we'll see that as well further on in Psalm 19 verses 7 through 11 he goes on to talk about the greater revelation there's a revelation of nature he says in verse 7 the law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul the testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple the statutes of the Lord are right rejoicing the heart The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And uh, all these, he's talking about the word of God. And when he says the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, that's just another reference to his word. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So we find that greater revelation of God's word. But God speaks to fallen man, and fallen man can hear, and fallen man can respond. He can choose to follow, believe, 
what is being told to him or the vice versa aspect. In Acts chapter 14, uh, Paul and Barnabas were trying to keep these people from, I think it's Lystra, from uh, sacrificing to them as gods because of man had been healed. In verse 15, uh, Paul says, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good. He gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. He had a witness through creation and the good things that he did even to those who were fallen in sin. And they can perceive that. Paul points it out to them. In Romans 2.4, Paul says, do you, do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? When people see the goodness of God in his blessings, it's intended to lead them to repentance. And then in Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18, and this, you know, from 18 to the end of the chapter, you're, you're probably familiar with it. Uh, goes through a stepping down, a degeneration from here to the end. He says in verse 18, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. He's talking about fallen men here. He's not talking about believers the wrath of God's revealed and it's because they have not responded to what may be known of God that is manifest in them instead they have um, suppressed the truth in unrighteousness and he says in verse 20 then since the creation of the world is invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse because though they knew God, this is these same fallen people. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And they didn't know God in itself, a saving sense, in a salvicish. They didn't know him in that way. They just knew that he was God. And they had the opportunity to respond to the truth that he was revealing to them. But they rejected it. Later in Romans 1.25, he says these same people exchanged the truth of God for the lie. So they had access to the truth of God. They exchanged it for the lie and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And then in verse 28, he says, Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge... God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. So they had the knowledge of God, but they chose not to retain it. They chose to get rid of it. And then over in Romans chapter 2, speaking of the contrast between the Jew and the Gentile, he speaks to the Jew as having the law. In verse 12 he says, as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things that are in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. These are again Gentiles. They don't have the law. They don't know God. And yet they are aware of the law of God because it's been written in their conscience. They know what's right and wrong, and they have the choice that they can make. So we have God calling out to sinful man continually, calling him to repent, to turn back from his sins to God, to be reconciled to God by faith, 
For example, in Matthew chapter 11, these are passages you're familiar with. Uh, verse 28, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Jesus is inviting people to come to him, people who are unbelievers, people who don't know God in a saving sense. Can they hear him? Can they respond? John chapter 7, verse 37, on the last day of this this, uh, feast of uh, tabernacles, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me drink. Anyone. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified as living water. is the Holy Spirit but this invitation is open sinful man come to me and drink you thirsty come and drink can they hear and respond to that I think the answer with a plain literal reading of the text is yeah otherwise it would be a meaningless cry meaningless statement Isaiah 55 verses 1 and 3 Jesus echoes this in John 7 Uh, Verse 1, it says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Who do you spend, why do you spend money for that that is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear, and come to me, hear, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Ezekiel 18 and verse 23, the Lord says, Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? He's speaking to fallen, sinful man. Later in chapter 18 and verse 30, Ezekiel says this, um, Well, this is the Lord speaking through him. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent, turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and Live. I'm speaking again to those people who don't have life, but they can have life if they turn to him. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 16. He writes and says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. Come now. And let us reason together. He's reasoning with fallen men. Says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He's laying this choice before them. Being willing and obedient or refusing and rebelling. And they're able to make that that choice they have that ability as fallen human beings so his command God's command to mankind is to repent of their sins and turn to him for forgiveness but the command is given in the form of an invitation the RSVP is man's responsibility man man's response is to be given freely not coerced in any way. And we see this in Joshua 24, 14 and 15, where Joshua says to the Israelites, Now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. They had a choice that they could make, and they were able to make it. Second Chronicles 15, verses 1 and 2. 
the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Obed, Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Again, the people of Israel had that choice to make, and they were able to respond to God's voice and hear that choice, or make that choice. In James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10, uh, James writes this, He gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Once again, they could respond to this message. Um, Revelation 3.20 Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and him with me, he with me. So this is an invitation for a person to open the door of their heart. Right? This is being spoken to individuals and allow Jesus to come in. It's you know it's been said by some that there's no doorknob on the outside of the door. Jesus only can only knock. You have to open the door from the inside in this situation. And so you're able to do that. Jesus calls to the heart. says, come to me. says, open the door. You're able to respond. Fallen men are able to respond. All of us were in that situation at one time. And we responded to the call of God. And we heard it. And we came to him. Man is able to hear the word of God and respond positively or negatively. If a man humbles himself, God will give him grace. And if a man refuses God's word, God will resist him. And uh, we read James 4. It's also stated in 1 Peter 5, 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So that's the sovereignty of God and the free will of man not exhaustively but to this point so what about election then what does it mean and particularly in our context for the elect's sake whom he chose he'll shorten those days who are the elect in this passage and so uh, we'll talk about that later hopefully next week uh, we'll, we'll look specifically at election and see what we can discover about that.